1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's chief medical officer and host of the Spotlight On series from WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. For this special two-part episode, you'll hear up close and personal journeys about being diagnosed with a rare type of cancer, multiple myeloma.
0: He looked at me, I have been his patient for more
1: than 20 years, and he said, this is really strange, you're an
0: African-American, age 57, I've never seen this before. This back pain that you're continually having with no signs of osteoporosis. No signs, exactly. And I didn't have any signs of osteoporosis in my family history. Listen to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. What is going on, belly up sports fam? It's your favorite history teacher, Mr. Parker Ainsworth, here with another edition of FN Sports, the podcast where teachers grade sports' biggest issues. This week, we hit some theses on college football. MLB, and a quick look at the WNBA playoff starting next week. But first, let's hand out some gold stars and detentions. First gold star is going to Duncanville High School in Dallas, Texas, their head coach Reginald Samples. Coach Samples has a long history as a high school head football coach in the DFW Metroplex. Samples, who previously built powerhouses at programs like Dallas Skyline and Dallas Lincoln, won his 300th game as a Texas high school football coach on Friday night. Per Dave Campbell's Greg Tepper, Samples is just the 13th head coach to accomplish this in Texas and is the first African-American to do so. Samples came to Duncanville and has quickly seen it rise to one of Dallas's, the state's, and the nation's premier football programs, much like his previous stops at Skyline and Lincoln. Samples' 300th win came over arch-rival DeSoto last Friday night. DeSoto is also a nationally recognized powerhouse in the DFW Metroplex. Congrats to Coach Samples on the big weekend and the long career of success. Wherever Samples goes, they find ways to be successful, and Duncanville is no different. The top 25 nationally ranked Panthers were in the state title game in 2018-19 and 19 under Sample and the semifinals last year. Hats off to Coach Reginald Samples. Our first attention of the week goes to a... Proposal gone wrong at a New York Liberty game? Uh, How this video did not go viral to a bigger extent, I'm not really sure, but on Friday evening at a New York Liberty game in Brooklyn, New York, the Barclays Center, there was an entire set of proposal using the Jumbotron. It was a really, really cliche, sweet moment, on one knee, hearts on the Jumbotron, etc. until it wasn't. Shortly after the guy took a knee on camera, the young woman tried to whisper something into his ear. The guy then looked confused, and she hurriedly walked back down the row of seats across the section on her way out of the building. Uh, Some people in the building, like fans and things like that, thought it might have been staged. But as more leaks from the PR team came in, it was very apparent that it was not staged. They were all very taken aback. Reports indicate that there were even more celebratory imaging and fanfare after the assumed yes was coming. They were having... Preparations for more things to come, and none of them came. Uh and a miss to the young man in a Sabrina Ionescu jersey, at least. Uh, per Instagram story, Ionescu does want to sign the guy's jersey after a rough night. This detention is more about the idea of proposing at a game in general, though. This is just another reason why you shouldn't go and do that. Uh, just, go, just go sit in detention and think about that. This is not the way those things need to be handled, and it's probably time for those things to stop. All right, so this week, again, we got some theses over college football, one on Major League Baseball as we head into the playoffs for them in a few weeks, in a couple of weeks, I should say. And last but not least, we will wrap up with a WNBA thesis as we look towards their playoffs. All right, so our first thesis of the week comes to us from the Oklahoma and Nebraska football game played on Saturday. For those of you who missed a fun contest The game came down to a couple of big Oklahoma stops down the stretch. It was a one-score game for a big chunk of that fourth quarter and really had the Sooners shaking. This thesis reads that DJ Graham should have dropped the interception. To that, I'm going to have to hand it a Uh, We'll explain why in a minute it does pass, but I'm going to have to give that one a C. Okay, so if you haven't seen the DJ Graham interception from the Oklahoma vs Nebraska game on Saturday, I'm not sure how to best articulate what happened, but here's a try. On a fourth down play with 8.16 left and the game very much still undecided, Nebraska went for it from just outside their own red zone. Adrian Martinez, Cornhuskers quarterback, dropped back to pass and launched one near the front right pylon. Out of nowhere, linebacker DJ Graham launched his body and pulled the ball down one-handed out of air while his body is parallel to the ground. Again, one-handed with his body parallel to the ground. He skids across the ground and comes up showing the football. The crowd in Norman erupts. All of the Sooners go wild. Oklahoma gets the ball. Oklahoma ran three plays for zero yards. Punts the ball from inside their own end zone. Nebraska responds with a quick touchdown drive to cut it to one score. Uh, As bananas as the catch was, Twitter fingers went crazy afterwards, especially as Oklahoma's punting it out of their own end zone. Many pointed out, had Graham just batted the ball away, Oklahoma would have netted 20 yards of field position because it was a fourth down play. Theoretically, that yardage could have shifted the game. Again, Nebraska cut the Sooner score to seven. Uh, Oklahoma ends up holding on to win 23-16. to 16. And yes, people are right that as a coach, a coach myself, we teach kids to bat everything down on fourth down. We're calling out from the sideline as we're reminding people for the play. Uh, we're practicing in situations throughout the year, and we're shouting it out then. This does get a passing grade because of that. Graham was likely coached to bat the ball down. Theoretically, that would have, air quotes, helped the Sooners more. But it's only a C. Because you can't coach the kids to not make a play, especially when the play is so incredible. Some plays are worth more than their box score outcome. In basketball, for example, every shot inside the three-point line is worth the same amount of points. They're all two points. But when LeBron James rises up to hammer a dunk down on top of the defense, that feels like it's worth more. Every touchdown is theoretically six points. But a scat receiver making four dudes miss on his way to the end zone makes a big difference. It drives more momentum. Especially at home, where the crowd erupts like they did in Norman, sometimes making a play just means more. Graham made a play that really shifted that momentum. There was a visible sigh from the entire Cornhusker sideline as if they could just be like, oh, they can do that? Like, that's the thing that can happen? That's something that's so much more apparent to the athletes on the field, too. If you've played, you you know the feeling. The deflation of succumbing to a phenomenal play like that is worth making the phenomenal play like that. The impact of the viral clip for a phenomenal play like that is worth the phenomenal play like that. It makes a big impact on the program. The boost of energy on the Oklahoma sideline is also worth it. It's visible. Guys are bouncing. Guys are having a great time. It's enthusiasm. There's also nothing that says that a batted ball there isn't necessarily caught uh, the angle that Graham's body is spiking that ball down with his body parallel to the ground might have been more difficult than just getting a hand on it and catching it and his hands had just been in the way and not spiked it there's a real chance that there's a tip ball situation there we've all seen those things happen in the end zone a tip ball into the end zone is not any kind of guaranteed incompletion, completion especially on that type of a flood pattern with several guys in the end zone able to catch it So sure, this thesis does pass because an incompletion would have technically netted more yards and is technically, probably, what DJ Graham was coached to do. But man, there are just too many positives in making the catch of the year, especially one that is in spite of a bunch of Twitter trolls trying to be sideline coaches from their thumbs. I'm not here for that. You get to pass because technically you're right. But you don't get to pass for flying colors or anything like this. is scraping by by the skin of your teeth. Alright, so our next thesis comes out of left field. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's coming out coming out of Major League Baseball. The thesis reads: This year's NL West proves there should not be divisional protections in playoff seating. This is actually a story on ESPN.com for some reason. Um, we're gonna hand this one a B. All right. So, we gave this thesis a B, and it kind of comes down to just some more principal things I have about sport. Uh, regardless of sport, if you've played everyone in the course of the season, the idea of divisions within conferences, or in this case, leagues, baseball is divided into two leagues, separating teams into the playoffs is odd to me. This year, the situation arises in NL the West. There are San Francisco Giants and Los Angeles Dodgers look like they're going to be able to clear the 100-win line. The only other team in the National League with over 80 wins currently is the Milwaukee Brewers. But because one of the Giants or Dodgers can win the division, the other has to play in the one-game wildcard playoff. In a one-game sample, anything could happen. So theoretically, one of the league's best teams will head home before the playoffs even really start. I gave this thesis a B, however, not because I want to necessarily see either the Giants or the Dodgers head home early, but because I value the regular season. Uh, And in the MLB regular season, as it stands, you play 76 divisional games in a 162-game season. That's nearly half of the games. Winning your division needs to have some sort of a prize, or else why do it? The length of the season has, or so traditionalists tell me, the league this season has been part of the grind. It's not just who you play, but how often and when. Thus, winning the NL West deserves a real shot in the playoffs, when the NL Central does for Milwaukee, too. For all we know, the reason that Atlanta, Philly, and the Mets are all so closely linked together isn't because they're only 76 wins good in the NL East, but because they're tearing each other apart. What do we do if Philly wins the East, the wildcard playing game, and the wild Card round, both against the NL West? I'm not going to predict that, frankly. I'd kind of predict the opposite. But that's not really the point here. The point is, the only way I'd fail this thesis, and the reason it's also not a perfect A, is because you could completely redo the schedule with it. If you played all the National Te- League teams evenly, I could see the argument for removing the divisions in the standings, just going one, two, three, and then have four and five played out for the four spot. If you play the whole league the same amount, there then there's the rational idea of just seeding it straight. But when you've played a schedule shifted towards your division so much, again, almost half the games, that has to count. In a sense, the division leader after 162-game season has already won the race. They beat the division so dramatically over the long period of time. The Giants have three less losses in that division at the time of recording this, and the Dodgers have just over 10 games to figure that out. This really is an interesting attempt at an indictment on the one-game wildcard playoff. The one-game playoff for the wildcard spot was introduced in 2011. Since 2012, the two wildcard seeds have played a one-game playoff for the fourth and final playoff spot in each league. It's really become, in many ways, the most exciting game of the year. It means that some team that thought they were good enough to get into the playoffs is headed home. And in 2014, the Giants, and then 2019, the Nationals, that game was won by world series champion if the dodgers or giants have such a big problem with it the solution shouldn't be to change the system it should be to just go win that game and get in the playoffs like you normally would yes i know that craziness can happen in a one game sample but sometimes that's just the way the cookie crumbles but anyway back to the thesis as it stands i'm not even sure anymore that the b is the best grade here if the giants or dodgers argument isn't somehow tied to redoing the schedule and playing the rest of the league, and the argument just had nothing to do with that, it frankly should be much lower. Truthfully, if you played 76 division games in five months and won the division, you deserve the right to potentially play someone else in the playoffs. And if you haven't won it by then, maybe you need to earn your way in versus someone else, even if it is a one game sample because you haven't been able to do it against your division over the course of again 76 games in a five month window our next thesis takes us back to college football and saturdays but this one's more of a look at the fun part of college football the thesis reads the penn state whiteout is the best tradition in college football I'm also gonna give this one like a B or a B minus. I'm just not super high on it. Let's break it down. Okay, so this comes to us after a classic Penn State whiteout. This is a fun weekend for that classic Penn State whiteout game. Penn State whites out the stadium once a year, traditionally against their preseason highest ranked opponent they're facing at home. They've done it every year except 2020 since 2004. This thesis pops up after they just whited out the Auburn game or the weekend and a big win on Saturday night. The Nittany Lions won 28-20 and a sea of white rushed the field after number 10 Penn State held off number 22 Auburn. Rewind the clock a little bit because this is a lesson from a history teacher. In 2004, pre-Twitter and social media, and really in the earliest days of college emails, Penn State was looking for a way to be sure the stadium didn't have any red red for an upcoming game against the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Uh, Guido Delia, the director of branding and social uh, social marketing and things like that at the time, said everyone's got a white t-shirt, and the Ninny Lions began the tradition by simply spreading the word of mouth leading up to the game that week. Uh, Urban Meyer has since called the game at least a 10-point advantage. Other athletes have spoken of how distracting the swaying sea of white can be. On the whole, it really is an incredible sight. Uh, it's always during a night game, under the light, which adds this reflective atmosphere. The whiteout is spooky and loud and indiscriminate. It's meant to be both unifying and intimidating, and to the Lions' credit, it is. But is it really the best college football tradition? It feels like many schools have something similar. There's something about like all those striped overalls in the Big Ten, and Wisconsin's got the jump around. When Texas and Oklahoma split the Cotton Bowl in half, half of it's orange and half of it's red. Uh, Boise State wears blue and plays on blue and passes out blue shirts pregame. The Aggies have their maroon out and the 12th man and all that j- nonsense. Ohio State dots the I. There's the Hawaiian Haka, Rammer Jammer, Yellow Hammer in Alabama. Inter uh, Sandman at Virginia Tech. Uh, their Iowa has the wave. West Virginia has the country road song. And I wonder if in like 10 years you're going to say the same thing about whenever Miami comes back in their turnover chain. This thesis gets a B or a B minus not because the Penn State whiteout isn't great. It is. It gets a B or a B minus because everyone at every school that's a big school with lots of tradition has some form of this. If I were to hand out a award to, or a gold star or some sort of a other thing you'll see in a classroom to someone for their traditions and call it the best tradition, part of me wants to hand this to Army-Navy for March On and the annual tradition, frankly, of just playing a game the week after everyone else is done uh, and all the other special things that happen around that week. That's the only thing I think that kind of has itself separated because it's one Saturday a year after everyone else is done playing and that's the only game we're all watching that's the only thing i can think of as being somewhat separate and above the rest the rest of these penn state included are all sitting in the b b minus range because they're all something that everyone else also does
1: okay parker so the thesis statement for this commercial is james harden has the best beard in sports what do you think about that thesis statement
0: Oh, I give it an A. You know, as a Houston guy, we, we seem to have an affinity for our beards between guys like him, Dallas Keiko, lots of big beards in the Houston area. What do you think about the thesis?
1: So I'm a Jets fan, and I absolutely love the beard that Ryan Fitzpatrick has. So maybe I would give Ryan Fitzpatrick the nod over James Harden. But...
0: all right so our next thesis comes from the baltimore kansas city football game on sunday night if you missed it you missed a thriller the thesis reads baltimore going for the win at the end of the chiefs game was too risky listen this is an f this is just a flat f it was a great end to a great football game now let's dive in okay so listen This isn't just an F in hindsight. This thesis flunks because it's 2021, and we can check the numbers on this. The analytics bear out what happened. For the uninitiated or the people that went to bed early on Sunday night, the Baltimore Ravens had the ball with a minute and five seconds remaining. It was a fourth and one at the Baltimore 43-yard line. Coach Harbaugh, even though he's backed up, after checking with Lamar Jackson, opted to run a QB sneak and get get the one yard as opposed to punting. He and the Ravens were heralded all Monday, all day long, for a gutsy call. Uh, had they not gotten it, the Chiefs would have had the ball with a minute, uh, just under a minute to get less than ten yards and kick a field goal to win the game. It really was a high risk situation. Punting the ball would mean you're at least making Mahomes and the Chiefs theoretically get a few first downs, uh, spinning the clock, and hopefully making it a longer field goal. But the numbers there just don't add up even if Baltimore coffin corner down to the punt inside the three-yard line, the Mahomes, Kelsey, and Cheetah field offense just needs a couple of Kansas City normal completions to be back in field goal range. The Chiefs had a pair of turnovers in the second half, but otherwise had plenty of success all game long to indicate they'd be able to get the ball into field goal range again. Punting the ball there would have been hoping for a Kansas City mistake, a tip ball, failing to get out of bounds, or a missed field goal. Instead, Baltimore took the matters into their own hands, getting the first down sealed the win and didn't give any chance to Kansas City or Patrick Mahomes. Further, Jackson had 14 carries for uh, just over 100 yards at that point in the game. As a team, Baltimore had rushed for 250, getting that yard as part of the Baltimore identity and as part of what they'd been doing all night to be successful. Lamar is as good a bet for that single yard as MVP Cam Newton was in 2015, as Tom Brady was in all those quarterback sneaks in New England, and frankly, as like Josh Allen was a year ago, right? This is the wave of the running quarterback. New England figured all this math out with that man, Tom Brady, just over a decade ago. If you remember back, think about the fall of 2009. In the fall of 2009, New England Patriot Tom Brady found himself in a kind of similar situation against Peyton Manning and the Indianapolis Colts with two minutes and eight seconds left in that game at their own 28 yard line. The Patriots had a fourth and two. So more time further back, a little bit bigger distance, but over the whole, very similar situation. Brady also chose to go for it, depending on what reports you read. Some people blame it on Belichick. Some people blame it on Brady. It's probably some conglomeration of the two and Belichick decided a concept that they were going to run was going to be for the first down. It ended up resulting in a bobbled swing pass ends up getting tackled short of the first down. And Belichick got ridiculed. Tom Brady got mocked. But that season, Peyton Manning was on his way to a second consecutive and fourth overall MVP. They were going to the Super Bowl later that year. That offense with two minutes left was a lot like what Mahomes and Kansas City are today with a single minute left. And that is what makes this the right decision. Giving the ball to that offense means you're giving the ball back to some of the best players in football and hoping that they don't play like the best players in football. It's not that you can afford to miss the fourth down conversion if you go for it as New England 2009 or Baltimore on Sunday. That's obviously a bad situation and it's loses the game. There's no doubt about it. it. loses the football game. It's that it takes the game out of the opponent's hands when you go for it on fourth down. It takes away from their best options and put the games in the hands of your best options. Manning had 327 yards and four touchdowns that Monday night game in 2009. Patrick Mahomes had 343 yards and three touchdowns on Sunday. Giving either of those guys the ball in that situation and hoping you can just successfully defend them from getting inside of the 40-yard line with a minute or two left, is the, that would be the gutsy play. Not keeping it away from them, that's the smart play. All right, so our last thesis of the week reads, Liz Cambage of the Las Vegas Aces will make a return and make a difference in the WNBA playoffs. I give this thesis, as she said, she's returning an A-minus. Let's break it down for a second. All right, I'm going to keep this short, but after a brief stint with COVID-19, Liz Cambage is returning to the number two seed, Las Vegas Aces, just in time for the playoffs. She averaged just over 14 points and eight rebounds in the 25 games she played this year, even though she played less than 24 minutes a game. That's pretty impressive for folks watching the WNBA these days. Uh, Obviously, we all remember Liz Cambage a couple years back, put up 53 points in a single game as the star on the Dallas Wings. Now she's in a little bit different situation and, frankly, continues to make the most of the minutes she's on the floor. I'm going to simply say that a healthy Cambage would make a huge difference this year for the Aces, assuming she's back to full health, because of the lineup versatility it offers. In the same game, Vegas is able to go big with Wilson and Cambage, Go small and use Asia to stretch five. They run Kelsey Plum and Chelsea Gray off a bunch of hammer screens and cross-court actions. They get to use Jackie Young to steer the ship. Um, and it really is a good situation for them to have that many different options. Uh, for more on the WNBA playoffs, here's my plug, shamelessly, to go check out the midweek midrange for a full WNBA playoff preview. I'll be hosting that on Tuesday night, uh, but if you're checking this show out after Tuesday night, you're like, oh, I missed it. Guess what? It'll be on YouTube all week long, really all the time. You go back check back and check it out, even after the WNBA playoffs have started. Uh, so make sure you go find the Midweek Midrange on YouTube for more on Liz, the Aces, and the WNBA. <laughs> Friends, that is another edition of FN Sports. Feel like you're all caught up on the latest this week? If you enjoyed the Hoops Talk, you're in luck. We have another episode of Midweek Midrange, as we said before, this Tuesday night. Yes, it is normally a Wednesday night show, but we're currently slotted for Tuesday this week. It's a long story. We'll explain it perhaps on the show. Uh, I'll be joined by Jasmine Brown of Highlight Her, a Bleach Report outlet. And Ladarius Brown of Beyond Women's Sports. Uh, that'll be again Tuesday night at nine o'clock Eastern on YouTube and Twitter. You can find us on YouTube or Instagram and Twitter at Midweek Midrange. That's at Midweek Midrange on all your social medias. Be sure to tune in Tuesday night or whenever you want to this week to catch up on what the latest in the WNBA will be. It's all basketball, all the time. Show at Midweek Midrange. As for me, my personal stuff, which includes all my podcasting, appearances, shows, writing, general nonsense, and occasionally W but mostly L's on sneakers, can be found at Painsworth512 on Twitter and Instagram. That's at P-A-I-N-S-W-O-R-T-H-512 on Twitter and Instagram. This show is also on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, On Twitter, we're at N 2 That's F-I-N-S-P-O-R-T-S, number two, all one word. On Instagram, we're at F underscore N underscore sports. That's at F underscore N underscore sports. Be sure to like, subscribe, rate, review. Do all the wonderful things that help out the podcast. And whatever you do, please remember, don't flunk with us. Later, guys.